I'm Stephanie Lugo, and this is the Market Authority Show. Hey, I'm Stephanie Lugo, ex-corporate nine-to-fiver turned top producing realtor and coach. It wasn't all that long ago that my husband and I quit our nine-to-fives to start our real estate business together with no experience in the industry, just a dream for a life with more freedom and flexibility and the chance to impact others along the way. But it wasn't always easy and I remember what it felt like to lack the confidence, direction, and know-how that we needed to build our dream business. Fast forward through lots of work, failed attempts, and lessons learned, and you'll see what we've built today. A business that offers us more freedom and income than we ever thought possible and changes the lives of others every day. I created the Market Authority Show to enlighten the path to becoming an authority in your market. I'm here to share simple, actionable, step-by-step help and inspiration to build your dream real estate business with help from Timeless Principles and today's cutting edge strategies. Whether you're just starting out on your real estate journey or you've been around for a while, we've got a few tricks up our sleeve that you'll want in on. So let's dive in. a very exciting conversation to bring to you today, my friend. I'm so happy that you are spending this time with me because I introduce you to Dr. Sophia Town. Sophia is a professor at the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University in New York City. Her research and teaching centers around the knowing, doing, and most importantly, being of wisdom and flourishing. I think this is a really important and underserved perspective in the real estate industry. During this conversation, we dive into what it means to flourish as high-performing agents, how to cultivate wisdom, what to do about our society's prioritization of the rational mind, and we might even answer the never-ending question of, can we really have it all? Sophia seems to think that we might, and she shares about a recent study of hers that examines what it takes to be an exceptional leader and the different ways that we can process information to make wise decisions. At the end of the conversation, we end with a super simple mental exercise on what we can do to amplify our personal flourishing. And yes, that does touch on the principle of self-care, but I promise it's very practical, not too much woo, unless, of course, you want to make it woo like I do too. (laughs) Without further ado, here's Sophia. Sophia, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Oh, I'm doing wonderfully. How are you doing, Stephanie? I'm very excited. I'm pumped. We were just chatting a little bit about where we want to take this. And I was like, stop, stop, stop. Let's just hit record. I want to make sure we get all of the good details here for the show. So I'm really grateful that um, you're able to spend some time here with me on the Market Authority Show with our audience. For those who have not yet had the pleasure of meeting you and knowing a little bit about what you're all about, would you mind sharing just a bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So, so professionally, I'm a professor. I'm an assistant professor of organizational behavior at the Gabelli School of Business at Fordham University, which is right in the heart of New York City. So my, when I took the job, I moved to New York. And as we were talking about earlier, earlier, um, just absolutely adore it here. So I find a lot of flourishing personally here. Um, my research looks at this kind of broad umbrella of human flourishing 
and I have several different tracks, but mostly what I'm interested in, in both research and teaching and speaking and doing events and conversations like this is how can we create more connection, wisdom and flourishing in our work lives, in our professional lives. So by connection, we're talking about a sense of belonging, belonging to something bigger than ourselves, feeling seen, heard, and um, honored as human beings with inherent dignity. How do we create that in our work lives network? Wisdom being how can we take the most skillful action in any context that not only serves ourselves but also serves more of the social good? Um, how can we make the wise decisions for ourselves, our families, our communities in the long run, right? That serves everybody. And then flourishing, and this is kind of my favorite um, research track. I love talking about flourishing and, and researching and teaching flourishing. Flourishing is also connected to both the individual and the social good. And it's how can I create thriving beauty in my own life that enlivens me and fulfills me while also, while simultaneously uplifting and elevating those around me through my own success. So what we find is that oftentimes flourishing and, and, and wisdom and connection, they're braided together. You can't untangle those three things. And it's all about creating both better, a better world and a better life for ourselves and our, and our communities. I think that's really profound, especially in, in Western contexts when we tend to get kind of myopic and think in these very individual terms. It's, we got to bring it back out to the, to our communities and families and social worlds too. That's fascinating. Um, I want to acknowledge you for doing that work. It's very niche and it gets very, very deep, I can imagine. So I'm sure that requires a lot of focus and intention on your part. Where, where I want to see if we can take the conversation is in the context of our audience, which are primarily women real estate agents. And you guys, if, if you're if you're one of our fellows listening, like this is for you too. I think that this is a really important kind of place to take this conversation because when we're speaking about growing a real estate business, our function as professionals, truthfully, is to protect the public. And a lot of real estate agents get into the business not understanding that our number one reason for existence is to protect the public, consumers, buyers, and sellers. And it's easy to lose sight of that when we are 100% commission-based, when there is more competition than ever to creating our, our business. And there are so many hurdles, not only from the current market conditions and the other external conditions like the pandemic, things of that nature, but also the industry is transforming so quickly that anytime you learn one thing, it's almost like you immediately have to evolve as things are changing that fast with technology and social media in, in our industry. So all that to say, we can get so close to our work and every next thing that we have to create in our business and forget A, that we're supposed to really be serving the greater good, the community, and B, this business is supposed to be helping us tap into our full purpose by serving and blessing our family and, and, you know, being able to, to tap into our full potential. That's where I want to kind of take this. So where is that disconnect? Is that specifically with Western culture? And I know that this was like the longest lead up question <laughs> ever. <laughs> um, but where is that disconnect? Is it specifically in Western culture where flourishing almost seems too indulgent to really like mm. translate into building a business and entrepreneurship? 
Oh, that is a, such a, a fascinating way of putting it. Um, I would say that what we find is in Western society, Western cultures, there is more of a bend toward either or thinking. And so, and that's not just related to like financial success and personal or social flourishing, but it's related to all sorts of different things, contradictions that we deal with in the day to day. But yes, definitely at a macro level, we tend to think in either or terms. I can have this or I can have this. I can have individual flourishing or family flourishing, or I can have a thriving business. And we see that um, I'm in New York City. You'll hear uh, fire fire trucks and stuff going out my That's window. Totally okay. um, <laughs> I can hear them they get really loud. <laughs> Um, so we definitely see that um, either or sort of myth or ethos applied to this work-life balance dilemma, which so many people um, deal with. But we see it in show up in many, many, many different ways. And um, one thing that I'd kind of like to start with, I'll tell you, is that the reason, one of the reasons that either or thinking is so prevalent in Western society actually has nothing to do um, or it's kind of arbitrary when it comes to the way our culture is structured. It has a lot more to do with language. So we tend to, in if we look at the English language specifically, for example, we tend to talk in either or terms. So we will say things that's braided throughout our language. So it's nothing that we can control, just part of the English lexicon. We say things like up, down, left, right, you, me, small, big, rich, poor, you know, and, 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 and. And other languages have the same sort of structure as well. But in the English language, we've really... We see a, a very um, kind of prominent um, metaphorization, if you will, of either or lang- either or terms in our language. We metaphorize our world in either or terms. And what's important about this is that we actually think in metaphor. We think in the metaphors we use and we think in the language we use. So because our language is so um, kind of structured in these either or ways, which doesn't have to be, it's just the way that it kind of is structured, we think then in that in that either or um, sort of approach and perspective, and it makes it really hard for us to realize that we can find what's called the both and. The both and meaning I can do both this and this. I can find financial success and I can find individual flourishing and, and family flourishing. In fact, those two things might actually um, uh uh, contribute to one another if we take a, a slightly different perspective. So I just wanted to start with that to kind of say it's like our language is like water to the fish, and so we think in these sort of dichotomy sort of dichotomies because of the fact that we are um, using this language constantly, which means we have to push back against it a bit and become really intentional with the way that we talk about things. Um, and I can give us some some uh, tips for for how to do that. And the way we talk then changes the way we see we see the world truly. Um, so, I think I'll can I share a little bit about my study, my recent leadership yeah. study that looked specifically. Same. Okay. So, all right. I um. So for the last couple of years, I've been one of my large research projects I've been doing is I've been uh, interviewing exec high level executives, like C suite folks, CEOs, CFOs, CMOs, etc., and then senior executives at companies all over the US. These are, so actually some of them are real estate, some of them are medical, education, law, I mean, energy, you name it, wellness, you name it. And um, I've interviewed at this point about 80, about 80 leaders in these different domains. 
And what's interesting about this group, and they're all successful leaders, objectively successful. Their companies are thriving. You know, their their employees are are, are happy. As you know, in terms of how we kind of um, typically measure employee happiness at a, at a high level, and they're profitable, right? But what's interesting is that half of these leaders are kind of standard people leading out in the world, right? Good people. Um, and then the other half are leaders who have a long-term mindfulness practice, a meditation practice. And in this study, I really wanted to look at what is the difference that makes the difference between leaders who are crushing it out there in the world, doing a great job, earning money, you know, profitable, thriving organization, and those who are doing all of that stuff, plus seem to have a little bit more of a wise, calm, um, non either or approach to running their businesses. Is there a difference? And mindfulness has been, connect, can, been connected a lot to um, challenging our ways of, uh, of either or thinking. It's been um, connected to paradoxical thinking is what it's called. So, so being able to solve complexity with a little bit more wisdom, mindfulness over time can create that. So I wanted to tease out the difference between these two leader groups. And what I found was that actually the mindfulness group does some things quite differently, um, specifically when it comes to na navigating complexity. Mm -hmm. So I want to stop here for a second. I just want your listeners to think about a, a specific time in their own lives. So can you think, I'm talking to everybody out there. Can you think about a time uh, specifically in your professional life when you felt pushed and pulled between two or more things that kind of competed with each other, where you thought to yourself, oh my goodness, I have to do this and I have to do this, but these things either totally cancel each other out or I don't have enough time in the day to do both or they kind of just don't really leave room for one another. And this is something that people deal with constantly all the time. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. if they're a leader, an employee, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home dad, a, a teenager. I mean, everyone deals with competing demands, but specifically people who run their own businesses, entrepreneurs, leaders, um, and even more so women leaders in the world find that they are faced with competing demands. Um, oftentimes it's two things. It could be multiple things that kind of pull against each other. And so if that is something that you can identify, and I know I can identify, uh, I wanted to look at the people at the top and say, well, how are these people who are really crushing it? How are they dealing with this complexity? And what I found was that in the data, it was that the group of leaders, the 40 leaders who practiced mindfulness, and these were longtime meditators, they meditate like five times a week, seven times a week, you know, for anywhere from two to 40 years, right? Longtime meditators. I found that they did some things differently. So the first thing that they did differently was when they were faced with competing demands, instead of ignoring them, um, denying them, or trying to kind of overwork or be extra, extra productive to kind of fit everything in, Instead, what they would do is they would kind of stop for a second and they would say literally out loud, either to themselves or, or their, to their teammates, they would say, or their direct reports, we have to do this and we have to do this. And these two things can coexist harmoniously. They would say some form of that. They probably mm -hmm. didn't put it exactly like how I put it. They said some version of that. So they basically surfaced the contradiction and they spoke it out loud. And that's really important because if you think back to the the fact that we, our language is wrapped in either or terms, we have to really challenge either or thinking by bringing sort of this both and thinking to the surface. 
So they would even go home and say this to their husbands. They would say this to their wives, their spouses, their, their, their friends. They would vocalize the competing demands. And they are not so scary once they're brought out kind of into the, into the open. So that was the first thing. The second thing that they would do is they would, and this is actually really interesting, I think, because <laughs> I've been using it myself. They would engage way more different types of processing when it came to how they um, processed and interpreted the information that they were given about the competing demands. Mm -hmm. So for example, I had one leader who, one participant who she was, she basically told me, look, I have to, I have to retain this one employee. It was going to say hire, retain. I have to retain this employee because they are my best salesperson. At the same time, they're engaging in some behavior I think is a little unethical. And so I think I need to fire them. I can't do both of those things at once. And that's like a true paradox, right? I have other people dealing with work-life balance stuff. I mean, you name it, competing tensions. It's, you know, I've seen it in, the, in, these, in these leaders. Um, and so the, the mindful group, what they did is they, they engaged in five different um, processing and um, information processing styles. So there, there are kind of five main ones. And the first group, the non-mindful group did two and the, the mindful group did all five, basically. And this is to kind of summarize it. So one way of processing information is verbal. So speaking out loud, talking about it, mm -hmm. talking about it to other people. The other way of processing complex information is um, thinking it through, rational, right? Planning, um, strategizing, creating pros and cons lists, you know, um, anything like that where you're really kind of thinking, analyzing, crunching numbers, that kind of stuff, right? The third, and this, oh, by the way, so both groups did those first two a lot, talking about it and thinking about it. Okay, that's mm -hmm. kind of normal because that's like human nature, right? Yeah. The mindful group, but they also did these three other ones that were different. They engaged in emotional processing. So what that looked like was when they were faced with complexity or competing demand, instead of just trying to think it through and talk it through and spin on a little hamster wheel of thinking, talking, thinking, talking, they would move over to this emotional place and they would tune into their emotions and they would say, how am I feeling about this contradiction? How am I feeling about this competing demand? And what might I learn from my emotions? What are my emotions telling me right now? You know, have you ever had something, Stephanie, where you're, you're kind of, you know, running a million miles an hour and maybe kind of a little stressed out. You don't realize you're stressed because you're just moving and moving and producing and producing. And then you realize you're not really seeing things clearly. And you kind of pause and take a breath and think, wow, I'm really stressed mm -hmm. out right now. Maybe I need to go take a, an adult timeout and come back to this problem. Have you, have you ever done that before? Yeah. And I wonder if you think that allowed them to take the space to dive deeper to what the core issue might have been in that situation, or to have had the space to just come up with a better creative solution for the actual problem at hand, or both? It's both plus. Yeah. So both okay. plus. So, so moving out of the thinking, talking, thinking, talking hamster wheel. And, and sometimes when we're talking, by the way, we're not talking to other people, we're talking to ourselves. So right. thinking and dialogue, like internal dialogue, right? So moving out of that hamster wheel to this emotional space, it allowed them to downregulate their emotions by first just becoming aware of them. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm stressed. Oh, I'm caught. I'm hooked. I'm judging myself. I'm judging other people. I'm blaming. I'm projecting. I'm anxious. It usually ended up becoming, coming back to I'm anxious, right? Because I've got this problem I can't solve. So like fear I'm, of the unknown? Totally fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown, 
fear of the um, not only unknown, like in terms of the future, but also not having an answer. So not knowing, you know, if I can't solve this problem, what's going to happen to my business, you know? So yeah, totally fear the unknown. Okay. So they would pull out of that space and they would, they come over to this emotional space and they would acknowledge their emotions thinking, okay, I'm stressed. And we, when we acknowledge our emotions, that actually just that acknowledgement down regulates them slightly. So it kind of loosens some of that up. And then they would ask themselves, what's my stress telling me about how I'm coming to this problem? Because when we're stressed out, uh, we could become more myopic. Our creativity, you've mentioned creativity, our creativity narrows when we're stressed and we're not able to see as much. And it's like, I use the example oftentimes of you're running around the house late, you know, where's my phone? Where's my phone? Where's my phone? I, you know, where's my phone? I'm running out of the house. And then I, I hear my phone go off or, or, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, it's in my pocket. Right. You know, but if, but, but if I realized that I wasn't late anymore, or I, I, you know, I didn't have to get to where I was going, or I realized I was an hour ahead, I would have, I, I'm fine. You know, that's how our anxiety works. It kind of um, limits what we see. And so by downregulating, they were able to create, have find more creative options by kind of expanding and opening up their, um, their awareness. But then they engage in something else too, a little bit deeper. Sometimes it's really hard to understand your emotions cognitively. You know, sometimes we try to analyze and self-reflect, but we, it's harder to understand our emotions cognitively when we're in that thinking space. So, so what the mindfulness group, I'll call them, did was they tuned into their physical body as a way of knowing to understand their emotional state and then understand the problem with more wisdom. Mm-hmm. So they would say, Oh, I'm in this, you know, I'm moving fast. I'm in this kind of, um, you know, I'm dealing with this problem. I'm in the middle of the situation. You know what? Okay. My chest is kind of tight. My palms are kind of sweaty. I think I'm holding my breath, you know, and that, that physical experience served as a signpost. And if anyone here listening has, has um, practiced with mindfulness work, this shouldn't be a surprise to you. You'll, this will sound very familiar. That that physical sensation can serve as a signpost and um, s- signals that they are an emotion in an emotional state and can do some of that reflective work or down regulating work. And then the last way that they processed information, and this one seems very counterintuitive in some ways, but the last way they process information is what I'm calling suspended processing, which is basically just stepping away from any problem solving or decision-making for a period, an intentional temporary period of time. And this does a lot of what you mentioned earlier, where it allowed them to come back to the problem with more creativity. And so by taking this sort of interlude, this, this little adult timeout from any problem solving or decision-making, and it could be five minutes, it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be two weeks, whatever your kind of situation allows for. Sure. But by taking that time out, the, the, what the, my participants in my study, what the data is showing is that they did a couple of very, very productive things. So the first thing that that time and space allowed them was time to um, downregulate their emotions even further. That's one. Time to engage in self-care, which we can talk about a little bit uh, later mm-hmm. on this call, if you'd like, because I'd love to share a little bit about self-care. Um, it's very important. Yeah. And it also allowed them to um, investigate the time frame of the problem they needed to solve. So basically, most people tend to think that whatever problem, that whatever organizational or professional emergency they're dealing with needs to be solved right now. And I had a, a, a 
one of my participants, she was an entrepreneur, but she was also a ER physician. She was a um, trained doctor and she did a residency in an ER. And she told me, she said, you know, now she's an entrepreneur. She said, everyone acts like professional emergencies are life and death emergencies. You know, she goes, I know life and death. I'm a doctor. I know like a medical doctor. I know what life and death, death is. So mm-hmm. most organizational emergencies aren't, aren't life and death, but we treat them that way. And how does the way we treat them then impact how we show up to them and our stress level, which then reduces our creativity. So she always uses language with her team to say, is this a, is this a deadline or is this a timeline or is, can this be a lifeline and change the way we think about and structure deadlines, um, quote unquote deadlines. I think that was cool little language, languaging there that she, she did to reframe that for herself. Um, we, I saw that a lot in the data and then the, uh, Oh, the last thing that they use that, that time for that interlude, and this is really, really critical. And I think this is especially for entrepreneurs um, because you're really running your show, you know, and this is like, it's all, it feels like it's all you and the burden's all on you, right? Um, is stopping long enough to pull back and take that 30,000 foot view. And Stephanie, you mentioned at the beginning of this call, you know, oftentimes, People when they're starting their business and they're or they're thriving in their business, but they're you know feeling like they need to evolve and keep up and learn the new technologies and the new marketing platforms and the new you know approaches and perspectives and and education and all of that. They feel like they have you know they're so close to it. You mentioned, um, and I think that's really important and powerful because when we can kind of pull out and look at the longer view, whether that's a timeline thing or even just coming back to my larger values, you know that can give us a lot more clarity and wisdom for how best to act Mm -hmm. next, how to decide, how to choose, how to move forward. Um, And that was something the mindfulness group did. And I I know I've been talking about this uh, study for a minute, so I'll I'll wrap up this part, but I want to just share that the um, the second kind of um, piece of analysis with this study was I didn't look just at how people responded to complexity or how they um, processed it, but then how they took action on it. And what I found in the data, it was kind of starking and illuminating is that the mindfulness group, they had a much larger repertoire for action and for decisions. So how they made decisions and how they acted was over 2%, it's not 2%, over 100%. It was 2.1 times, mm-hmm. 2.1 times larger and more varied than the, the other group. So basically in a nutshell, that means that they were more creative through this process and allowed them to kind of navigate their complexity um, with more ease and skill. Wow. (laughs) That was incredible. Um, There are so many things that caught my attention and a couple of the ideas that I was having when you were sharing those findings with me were so much of this seems to be rooted in scarcity versus abundance mindset getting stuck in the ego or being in a more like creative community centered place of presence. How much does trauma show up here? And the reason why I ask this, this is, this might sound like it's way out of left field, but I promise it ties in and it tracks. (laughs) So, (laughs) so much of performance is reliant upon our ability to make wisdom like decisions rooted in wisdom Mm -hmm. 
And when these fight or flight senses are activated, a lot of that is from previous trauma. And I've actually had the feedback, not that we get super woo in my mentoring and coaching process, but we do touch on it a little bit. I've gotten feedback on my coaching from individuals like this happened once or twice, but I I noticed it. And they said, you know, I I really just want more strategies. I want to know what I need to be doing. That's going to help get me to where I want to be. I just need more strategies. Tell me what to do when really it doesn't matter how good your blueprint is. If you don't know how to read it, (laughs) because, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. you are scrambling up the directions based off of your inner beliefs, traumas that are unresolved that are creating a fight or flight response that is inhibiting your ability to make these decisions. Yeah. Did you go into that with your research at all? Or is that more of just kind of like a confirmation of that is an issue that is seen in high performance levels? I, I have done research around trauma. I think it's a really important question. I, I have done research around trauma at the collective level. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of papers on how, um, society, how, how individuals in society, but as collectives cope and create resilience in the face of collective trauma. So I, I more look at it at, at that level, yeah. but I think you're spot on. I, one of the things that, that we are, I want to think that that's I think unfortunate um, in our our cultural myths around performance and success is that we need to constantly be doing 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 performing 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 and gaining more and more knowledge. And I'll speak about it kind of in the context of trauma or, or or through the language that you use. I'll speak about I think why that's a problem and what else we might want to do to help um, find flourishing and 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 financial success in a way that's, um, that feels better too, that actually feels better. So we tend to focus a lot and this isn't just in, in business. This is in education. This is in our society. We focus a lot on knowledge acquisition, right? Growing, learning. We focus a lot on then applying and implementing that knowledge. So you give the example of someone who comes to you for coaching and says, Stephanie, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And then I'll go out and do it. Okay. That's, and that is kind of braided in our social consciousness about what it means to perform and succeed and be ambitious and have a hustle, right. And go out there and, and, and kill it at work or right. Yeah. That those learning and doing, knowing, doing, knowing, doing, and knowing and doing at a really high level that's braided in our kind of um, ideas of what that looks like, what that's supposed to look like, but it's missing this really critical third component. And that is the being dimension. So we have knowing, doing, and being. Knowing is gaining inf- information and learning and um, knowledge, conceptual knowledge. Doing is practical skills, putting it into action. And being, which gets neglected, is integrating what we know so that at a level of depth, so that we can embody that knowledge and that practice and enact it wisely when the stakes are high. And when the stakes are high, that can be out there in the world, like something happened. So it could be contextual. You're out, you're working, you know, and something, an event happens, the stakes are high. So then how do I apply what I've learned skillfully? But it can also be an internal high stakes scenario where your emotions are high because something has triggered you, right? Or there is trauma or you're, you're someone said something or behaved in a way, or the world appears in a certain way that that is very, um, emotionally taxing on us or burdensome on us, right? Or we're having to engage in emotional labor, 
or deal with complexity between being a business owner and a parent or a spouse or a friend or a sister or a caretaker of a, um, another family member, right? Some competing tension. So all of that can kind of pull up some, we can call it trauma, but it can also be just kind of emotional high stakes situations where then we're not able to take what we know and what we do or what we know, what we know to do, and then be that way in, in the, in the, the moment when we're called on to, to show up wisely. And so what that being dimension really requires and demands of us is that we go, turn inward and engage in a lot of self-reflection. So you can know about be, you know business success. You can practice it when the stakes are low and see yourself do it and think, oh yeah, I got this. And then in order to be able to continue that practice wisely when the stakes are high and also know when to not practice, know when to say no to life or not no to life, but no to, you know, some demand of life calling at you, right? Create boundaries, those kind of things. We need to develop the being, our, our being dimension of learning. And the being dimension is, it can be um, uh, kind of accessed through mindfulness practice, journaling, self-reflection, the personal inquiry. Um, I do a lot of, I always recommend resources for further learning. So there's certain podcasts such as, um, is it okay if I share, if I yeah, of course. highlight a podcast on here? Okay. Yeah. Um, on being with Krista Tippett. Okay. Phenomenal. Yeah. I highly recommend it for gaining personal wisdom. What's really cool about human flourishing and wisdom as topical areas is that they can be applied to any context. So if you can find, create, know how to create flourishing and find wisdom when it comes to making hard decisions as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, as someone in real estate, as, as that, in that industry and domain, you can also, the same insights, because they're not, they're not contextual, they're not industry specific, the same insights around flourishing wisdom can be used in healthcare, in law, in our personal lives, in, you know, any, in any context. And so the being dimension isn't all that complicated. It's just difficult to access because our world doesn't give us a lot of opportunity and room and support Mm -hmm. professionally, usually to spend time turning inward and focusing on ourselves. Well, it can do it. It can feel wildly indulgent. Yes. At a time when the stakes are high, indulging is like the last thing that you want to think of for me anyway. And this is, it's so funny that we're having this conversation because this is a challenge that I'm like actively working through at this time. And if we look back at the last two years, you know, it's been real. (laughs) There's been a lot going on in real estate, in real estate specifically, we saw the entrance of more new agents than ever in the last like two to five years. So there's lots of new agents entering in at a time where the market cycle is at unprecedented ranges. And so we are in, in a market cycle where home appreciation like values have gone up almost 30% year over year in the last two years in areas. The competition is super fierce. There's very low inventory. And it's like you go Mm. out there and you're in a fight for your life with every client. And the rejection, the, the, the calculus that has to happen with every offer to see like, how can we stand out from 12 other bids? You know, there's, there's just so much. And, and I have found that me specifically, while our business is booming and doing really well, that is because we've been able to train our resilience to operate at this level over the last several years. 
we have the benefit of experience. Many new agents, for example, don't, or many agents who have operated at the same level for the last 10 to 20 years are suddenly feeling whiplash because they're like, where did this come from? They Mm. weren't paying attention to the signs. And then suddenly the market just came galloping ahead and like whipped them across the face. And they're like, crap, I can't pivot as fast as I need to, to keep my business afloat. What do I do? And sets Mm -hmm. the fear. Mm-hmm. Right. And that in itself is yeah. a very traumatic experience, especially for veteran agents who have been in the business and had successful businesses for 10 to 20 years, but they did not evolve at the same rate as the industry has. And so where this is, I can't speak for the rest of the industry. It's 1.5 million individuals, but what I can do is speak for myself. And my experience um, is not necessarily wholly unique, but it is my experience. We have entered into this crazy market cycle. It's been super challenging. I've launched a second business in coaching and mentoring, which has been super fun, but also you're constantly flooded with the um, feelings that others and the struggles that others are experiencing. We've grown our family. So we we became parents. Yes. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And we have reached a new level of success and like with our business that we've never seen. So it's this weird, like paradox where we are we are experiencing the highest of success that we've experienced so far which is super fun and also feeling more friction and challenge than ever before yeah and that oscillation where you're constantly trying to pivot throughout minutes hours throughout the day to those different roles is so challenging and so my question for you then is that where self-care matters <laughs> because <laughs> is it the self-care that allows you to tap into that being in presence to find that peace because i am i'm working on that and i realize like i literally have not listened to music in like 3 years just for fun oh. i was oh, yeah. sophia i was beating myself up last week for reading fiction like fictional romance just as a moment to veg and chill and like deregulate a little bit and and I'm sitting there reading while I have like these shirts that I need to hang up next to me and I'm like man I'm such a lazy piece like I can't I'm sitting here reading and I should be cleaning my room or whatever whatever you have for the five minutes of time when you don't have a toddler screaming in your face right right oh my gosh I'm so glad you shared that because that is such a common experience and to feel that guilt for mm-hmm. you use the word indulgence. I'm really glad you use that word because I'm, I'm going to use it in a minute um, in, a, in a slightly different way. And I want us to think about it, but I completely resonate with this. I am a recovering refe- uh, perfectionist, hardcore. Okay. And, and I know a lot of people are, and especially entrepreneurs, right? Because you're, this is, it's all about you. Like you are, you are the face, you are the, the, you know, financial, um, person, you are the marketing person, you are the mm-hmm. salesperson, you are your brand, you are everything. And so, gosh, the pressure to constantly be focused and on and get it right. And then if you're not working, the pressure then to, and oftentimes our perfectionism tendencies or ambitious tendencies transfer from our pers- professional lives to our personal lives and back. Yep. And so it's like, when do we get a break? When do we get a break? Right. And I have to tell you, I'm just a little bit of, you know, vulnerable disclosure here. It is very hard to get over these tendencies. Like for me personally, I have been actively working against my perfectionism for a long time, like a long time. And it's really challenging. Uh, And perfectionism is not a good thing. It's a limiting thing because it Mm -hmm. holds us to these standards where we feel like we have to be perfect all the time and we can't let our creative juices 
kind of do some of the work for us. Yeah. There's no expansion there. There's no expansion when you have some semblance of like a limit of perfection. Totally. You're right. You're going to do really, really well in your box here. Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe incrementally you'll move a little bit further, a little, your box will get a little bigger, bigger, a little bit bigger. But when we can let that go, and I've had moments of this, it's not how I always live, but I'm trying more. I've had moments of this where we, when you let the, the kind of um, perfectionism or that constant, that, that need to be constantly producing or constantly doing something, when you let that go, then you can get into these more flow type states where you come up with your more interesting, profound, innovative insights. And a, a quote from my, my study is one of the, my, my participants said, you need to leave space for innovation. Yeah. Innovation mm-hmm. requires space, you know? And so, and that's why we have our good ideas in the shower when you're cooking or jogging or somewhere where, you know, you're kind of in forced space um, or reading a good book. Right. So um, let's talk about, let's talk about self-care. So one of the huge differences between the two groups was that the, and again, the, the mindfulness group was o- over twice as creative. Okay. And one of the huge differences was that they would constantly take time for self-care. And when I did this study with them, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, I took self-care when they told me that they engaged in self-care, I took that at face value. I thought, oh, okay. I know what self-care is. It's, you know, things make you feel good or whatever things people do to you know, take a, take a bubble bath or mm-hmm. relax or whatever. Right. Well, it wasn't till about a year went by and then COVID hit. And I did this other study with a, my research team out of Arizona state on collective resilience in the face of collective trauma or collective coping. And what I found in the, that data was that um, people actually didn't know more often than not, people don't know what self-care is. And this was really illuminating to me because I thought, oh my gosh, I have this huge finding about self-care for my leadership study. And now I'm asking people who are in all sorts of positions, leaders, employees, unemployed parents, stay-at-home parents, I'm asking them about their self-care practice. And through a little bit of digging, it's kind of come to the surface and this data that people don't actually know what self-care is. And that was a profound moment of realization for me as a scholar, as a researcher, but also just personally um, and practically. And so through that data, I put together a self-care framework. And if we have time, I'll walk you through it. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So, and this, I'd love the people who are listening to this to kind of, kind of follow along because I think you'll get something really practical out of it. Self-care, when we look at the dictionary definition of self-care, it's basically, you know, activities that restore your well-being. Okay. So things people do to restore their their well-being. What we find in leadership research is that when we restore our own well-being, we are much better able to restore other people's well-being. So it's kind of, we call this co-elevating leadership where my flourishing helps other people flourish if I have a social intention or I'm focused on a social good. Mm -hmm. And so self-care can be really important as a leadership capacity, but because people don't know what it is, anyway, I'll get to this framework here. Um, It's important to identify. So what I found was that people do four things, four types of activities pretty regularly in their day-to-day lives. And regularly could be every day, every week, twice a week, et cetera, but frequently. The first is activities that feel bad now, but feel good later. And so if feel bad now, feel good later. So can you think of anything, Stephanie, that that fits this category for you? Things you do that you're like, oh, I don't enjoy this, but when I'm done, I'm glad I did it. I mean, I drug my butt unwillingly into the gym this morning and I feel pretty good about that. I did not feel good about it at (laughs) (laughs) 6am. Okay. 
Exactly. That's a perfect example. Perfect example. I, you know, I don't like going to the gym either. Um, or, or like reading another one is I've been trying to read financial planning books and I just find them so boring. And, mm-hmm. but then afterwards I feel productive, you know? Yeah. So that a lot of times people think that's self-care, they think the gym is self-care. They think that, you know, reading a book on self-help is self-care. They think that, you know, jogging is self-care. That category for most people is actually self-development. So it's something you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Self-development. It's good. It's a great category. It's so helpful. It makes, makes us better. It helps us improve. But if you think it's restorative from that, like that doesn't sound restorative to me. No, no, it's not. It's not, you're not going to get the full benefits of restorative benefits that self-care can give us. Right. If all you're doing is self-development. And so it's, this is like the biggest, you know, aha, you know, brain explosion moment for me too. Cause I was like, oh my God, I'm constantly in a self-development mode, but I'm always feeling burnt out, <laughs> you know, shocking, shocking, <laughs> shocking. Okay. So the second category that people engage in is activities that feel bad now and feel bad later. Yeah. And I don't want to put you on a spot, but if you can't, do you have any activities that you do that feel that, that <sighs> fit in this category? So one thing I'm working on is knowing when is when for just idle scrolling on social media. Um, I'm researching (laughs) (laughs) strategies, for example, for real estate marketing. Sometimes that research gets into like an idle scroll that, you know, exposes me to a lot of content that are not serving me. And then I get off the app, just kind of like irritated and then later yeah. on, I'm thinking about the time that I spent on the app. And I think, gosh, what? I need to have some boundaries there. That is a great example. That is a great example. If it's content that's not making you feel good while you're looking at it, right. and then you feel drained afterwards, and then beat yourself up afterwards for spending so much time trying to do this thing that was going to be maybe productive, but that's not what ended up, you know, how it felt for you. Sure. Yeah, that's that that definitely can be um, that category. I, I always say, too, if you have like a family member, I'm not going to name anyone, but if you have a family member that likes to complain a lot on the phone, yeah, but you have to, you feel like I'm obligated to call them. You, know? yeah, you see that caller ID come up and you're like, Ugh. yeah, I got to <laughs> yeah. do this. I got to take this. Yeah. So that's like, okay. So this, this, this category, this quadrant is um, self-sacrifice. Okay. So it's, you're sacrificing your well-being because you have an obligation or you feel like you have an obligation to do something. So it's, you know, this is adulting. This is doing your taxes when you're not going to get a refund. This is I was just thinking to... taxes. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, that's coming up soon for us, right? <laughs> yeah. Scrolling TikTok because you have to learn TikTok. You feel like you have to learn TikTok, but it's not restorative in any way, right? So you're sacrificing something, right? Mm-hmm. This is self-sacrifice. No one thinks this category is self-care, but it's important to point it out because it's one of the types of things we do, we spend our time doing, right? So it's good for self-awareness to know, okay, what do I spend my time doing? Yeah. The third category, and this one also gets misconstrued for self-care pretty often, uh, similarly to the first. These are activities that feel really good now, but not so good later. So I live walking distance from Milk Bar here in New York, which is this delicious bakery. Oh, yes. I'm well acquainted. (laughs) (laughs) They make the most... 
oh, the birthday cake, the truffles, the the cookies. I mean, yeah. So eating like four of the pieces of cake instead of just maybe half of one, you know, because they're big, like bricks. <laughs> God, but they're so good. And it, oh, so I'm not even going to go into it. If you guys have seen the Netflix special, definitely check it out. So they have one in Las, in Las Vegas and Los Angeles. Both are even too close for me being in Phoenix. <laughs> but I hear you. <laughs> but, but the same thing can be alcohol, right? Yes, like totally margarita night. Like for me, one big thing this year for me has been like re- calibrating my relationship with alcohol because even that like yeah oh my gosh I need a drink I need to like just de-stress from this crazy day and then you wake up the next day with a headache exactly and then you're depleted and you're starting the day on a on a less than spectacular note yeah that's another one that came up a lot um in the study I did with how people cope with COVID um so so thinking that self-care was having you know wine at night which it potentially can be but but over overdoing it right um, is where people, they talked about that a lot, especially during COVID. So this category is not self-care, it's self-indulgence. So it feels good now, bad later. Okay. It, this could also be like gossiping with a friend, you know? Um, so it feels good now, but afterwards you feel kind of guilty. Mm-hmm. It could be, you know, it, it could be social media. If you're, it, you know, that could be self-sacrifice. That could also be self-indulgence, right? Scrolling you know, spending too long and then feeling guilty. It's basically anytime you do something that feels good and then you feel guilty or depleted after the fact. So this isn't like an inherently wrong category. There's no moral imperative to this. I mean, I don't ever plan on not having a bunch of milk bar cake when I go there. Like I'm going to do it when I go there, but it's just about drawing awareness to, okay, that isn't necessarily self-care. And so what we're left with, people toggle. And, and this, I want, this is the most profound part of this research finding. I think people toggle between self-development and self-indulgence because mm-hmm. they're burnt out on self-development. They're then self-indulging to respond to the burnout and the overwhelm. Right. And then it's just this constant cycle back and forth. And self-care is when you can kind of pull yourself out of that and find activities that feel good now and feel good later. So you have it. Discipline is a factor here. And why does self-care require so much discipline? Because self-indulgence is no discipline and it can be when it becomes a problem. That's when you like the wheels fall off. You're binging, you're drinking a bottle of wine at night. (laughs) Not that I've ever done such a thing or you're like, you know, over snacking or whatever self-care it takes discipline to be like no i'm not going to watch netflix until 10 tonight i'm going to instead take a bath you know read a book have a little nighttime meditation or mindfulness yeah yeah you know Stephanie, i'm so glad you i'm so glad you brought this up because i just had an i just had an insight here on this call like right as you were talking right as you said that you just gave me a, a, a kind of a research insight that just it's blowing my mind right now so thank you for this. It's record, yeah. being recorded right here that this came from you. Um, <laughs> self-indulgence. The guilt with self-indulgence, the guilt comes after. With self-care, the guilt comes first. So we don't mm-hmm. engage in self-care, right? Because we feel guilty for stopping what we're doing and our, our obligations to our work or our families or our communities and going over 
in our little book corner and reading a fun book, fiction book on romance. We feel guilty for taking half a day off from work because we've been working six out, you know, six day weeks, seven day weeks. We feel guilty for taking half a day off and just going to the park with our dog. Yeah. You know, we feel guilty for taking a bubble bath and staying in there for an hour, you know? And so with self-indulgence, the deed's already been done. And so it's like, okay, I feel guilty, but I'm going to ignore it and just keep moving on with my headache <laughs> or my yeah. sugar stomach ache, you know? But with self-care, we have to be really intentional and say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to recognize that I'm going to feel guilty for this. I'm going to choose to do it anyway, because I know that when we can stop and engage in self-care, we actually gain more clarity and wisdom. We downregulate our anxiety and we therefore come back to the problem, our lives, our situations with more clarity and wisdom is better for everyone. And to me, that's, it's, it takes guts, it takes courage, but what could be really powerful is when we develop these habits is we can craft our lives and our schedules in a way that is more workable for us. And that does create more flourishing. So the other thing I'll just, I'll just touch on real quickly here is that I used to think that my success and achievement and um, the things that were going well in my life professionally had to do were, were, were a response to or an outcome of perfectionist tendencies. And what I have, am slowly but surely learning is that actually that's not the case at all. The success and the outcomes, the positive outcomes are, are a manifestation, a, a, a blooming of w- my own inherent wisdom and creativity and be able to see things in different ways and articulate things in unique ways. And so it's actually in inter- it's what it's me that's making these things happen in so many, in you know, so many words. It's not my perfectionist this, you know, re- demands. Yes, yes, it's in you. And so if we can step back and engage in self-care, it actually can come out of us more um, in more flow with more freedom and flexibility and joy and fun, you know? So you said earlier something about how this is very contrary to kind of like the status quo and how that requires us to do a lot of pushback. Even you just sharing that idea feels so tempting to me, right? Like, yes, like I'm being drawn in that makes so much sense. And I want that for my life. And then my egoic mind goes like, but, 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 but (laughs) what about all of the control? Where is the, you know, because I am a white knuckler myself. And I just think that that's so interesting because like, it truly does, as you say, like it does all kind of come together right at the end. The more we're able to grow and tap into the things that allow us to grow, the better the results we're going to find. And like you truly can have in our context anyway, that beautiful business that supports an incredible lifestyle and also serves Mm -hmm. the people who you're working with. Mm -hmm. That is so interesting. Sorry, I'm just processing. So what do you do? Do you just draw the bubble bath? <laughs> like, like when, you, <laughs> when you, when you come to that acceptance, where do you go from there? So one of my participants used this, this, this kind of metaphor that I think is just beautiful. And so I'd like to share, share it with you. It's yeah. um, basically a response to your question. So she said, she's a super high performer. Okay. Out there in the world and objectively incredibly successful. Right. And she said that she sprinkles self-care, a little self-care into her life every day. She sprinkles, sprinkles it into her life. 
it is not the main dish. It will never eclipse the main dish because if it does, it would become self-indulgence. Your whole life mm-hmm. would be too indulgent, right? But you can, you sprinkle it in intentionally into your day. And that allows her to kind of step out of the tumult, step out of the white knuckling, step out of the hamster wheel and find those little moments of personal quiet and self grace so that she can come back better to be frank with you. All of the people that I interviewed, I mean, I wouldn't say all, sorry, a majority of the people I interviewed specifically from the mindfulness group are self-proclaimed perfectionists or recovering perfectionists and highly ambitious type A people. They have found this other way of operating as a response to years and years of white knuckling. And they have been able to find more flourishing through it because it's not like, it's not like um, becoming lazy or doing shoddy work or becoming sloppy. Mm-hmm. You're inter- internally, you, you actually find more like fewer mistakes when you're not as anxious because you're not as myopic. You're, you're able to see things from a broader perspective, right? And so you're actually able to see kind of more of what's going on. It's kind of like a little superpower. So yeah. you like make less mistakes. Your decisions tend to be more aligned with your values. So you don't have to go back as much and, and, and undo, you know, decisions made. And then also, if there are problems that arise, when we can kind of give ourselves some of that self-grace and self-compassion, we're able to, which sometimes we need to pause and step away from the problem in order to do that. We're able to move through problems more swiftly because we don't spend time and emotional energy or cognitive uh, energy belaboring the problem by beating ourselves up or talking it out exhaustively with everybody. Instead, through kind of tapping into our own, you know, having our quiet time and letting ourselves be fully human and not just working machines, we can tune into our own wisdom more directly give ourselves some compassion when we make mistakes and just keep moving forward. And you see people out in the world who operate this way and they just kind of have this sense of calmness to them. Yeah. But typically they're performing at a very high level, just doing it with their shoulders a little bit dropped and their hands a little bit more free and smile more smiles on their face. Right. To me, to me, that's a sense of flow. Right. When I'm, when I'm speaking someone or seeing someone just kind of in their element performing at a high level and things just start getting done and execution feels easy and swift. That to me is a state of flow. Um, so it sounds like we all need to get really curious about what those things are that allow us to be, feel restored, to come back to center be able to tap into that presence. And I love the trigger of like, when do you feel guilt before for carving out that time? I think that is very interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you for kind of prompting that, that insight. I think that's important because yeah. Yeah. If we feel guilt after the fact, you've already done it, right. We feel guilt beforehand. We can deal with that guilt and say, is this really, why is this really skillful? Is having this guilt skillful? Is it necessary? You know, it's really hard to untangle, you know, our guilt. It's really hard to untangle our guilt, but, but even also that another thing too, is you can set aside just five minutes a day to do something that feels good now and feels good later. You might not be able to go to the park, but you could definitely go sit on your couch and breathe, you know, or go listen to your favorite song and, you know, with your eyes closed and no kids in the room, just listen to your favorite song for three and a half minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. do some stretching or something, whatever. It, it can be so, so, 
so small and minor, but you do it regularly. And then you're basically teaching yourself that you have, you're giving yourself permission to slow down and, and take that time. Yeah. I love it. You said that beautifully, giving yourself permission to invest that time and energy into something that's going to really, truly give you a return. Mm-hmm. So, so where is your research leading you next? Well, <laughs> I'm actually, this, I'm actually studying, I'll be studying love in the organization, love and organizing. Yes. And <sighs> I'm so excited. So I just got invited on to, um, this like just happened a couple of weeks ago. I got invited on to be an advisory board member for Harvard's human flourishing project. Wow. And her human flourishing program and this love project. And so I'll be doing some research partnering with them and my team at Fordham. And I love it because only Harvard could get away with saying, we're going to study love in the organization. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's, it's like so bold, but I think it's beautiful because, and what we mean by love is not romantic love per mm-hmm. se. Um, but, or even necessarily paternal love, you know, like parent, child, but we're talking about human, human love. And what that looks like is I'll I'll ask, I'll say in the form of a question, how can we create workplaces or organizations where people show up and they feel like their inherent dignity as a human being is being honored? Yep. That's love. You know, that's big love. Yeah. Um, I would, I would also say from my perspective, that has to be true on the service side as well. We mean with your clients, right? So whoever the organization is benefiting, like not, it's not only internal, it has to be part of that product. Oh man, that is so interesting. I want to hear more about it. (laughs) Maybe we'll have to do a round two. When oh, you have, when you've got some teeth in there to, to come and share, I would love to hear more about that. That is so fascinating. Absolutely. I can leave, I can leave your listeners with one little tidbit that they can do. They can practice with their clients actually. Yeah. That, that is a form of this kind of human love. It's silent. No one will know they're doing it. And it actually um, can increase their perceived charisma. So how charismatic you show up in the world with other people by doing this simple little thing. Um, so yeah. would you like a, a, an activity, some homework? Okay. Yeah, let's, do it. let's do it. Homework from the professor. Okay. So <laughs> t- t- typically when we kind of interact with people in our lives, be it coworkers, colleagues, people, our clients, customers, even our bosses, you know, people out there in the world, whoever, we tend to engage with these people in this um, from what's called an I it perspective. I it. And Martin Buber, a philosopher, wrote about this, if anyone's interested to do some more reading, but I'll summarize it briefly here. So the I-it perspective is basically where I treat people kind of like they are a function to me. So a customer is a customer. This is someone who buys things from me. Mm-hmm. A, a customer service person on the phone serves a function. They're meant to, to serve me or fix a problem I have, right? Um, the person on the train is a function. They're just another warm body on the subway, or they're the person that is driving the train or whatever, right? So everyone we meet, we kind of tend to see them as their function, their role and who they are to us, right? In that way. And so that's the I, it. And it's not, if you operate this way, this is not make you a bad person. We all do. It's just how we kind of move through the world efficiently, basically. <laughs> but if we can pivot from this I, it perspective to what Martin Buber calls the I, thou perspective, 
then we actually engage with people in much more um, meaningful, robust ways that make them feel like we actually see them, we get them, we acknowledge their humanness, we acknowledge their dignity. And the I-thou relationship is basically just looking at the person and it's so simple, it's so silent and it's private. It's looking at the person you're interacting with and thinking to yourself, I acknowledge you are a full and complete human being. You just say that internally, silently to yourself. And I have found personally, just anecdotally, when I do this, even if I'm just like at Starbucks ordering a coffee and I think to myself, when I'm talking to the person, you know, ringing me up by order, I acknowledge you're a full and complete human being. Or now I just use the term in my head. I just think I thou, cause I've used that little mantra. Yeah. Well, I will, res- I will engage with them differently. I will maybe be more, I make more eye contact. I'll smile more. It comes naturally when you, when you interact with people that way, it comes naturally and they respond to back to me differently. Mm-hmm. And, and so if you, it's wonderful in sales, right? Because customers oftentimes feel like a function, you know, like a function or like, oh, what do you want from me? Or they don't, there's less, less, not as much trust there, probably not in, in everyone's situation, but that can be, you know, um, pretty prevalent. And so responding to people from this I thou perspective kind of break and break down some barriers yeah. of who we are and just, and be, and, and um, yeah, it makes people, people feel very seen. And so I would encourage people to do that throughout their day, just practice and see what happens. Thank you for that. I am going to read further on that. That's actually a big part of what we do um, with my mentoring is I I truly believe one of our values is practicing extreme empathy. And what that means is caring enough about the individuals that we are hoping Mm. to serve, the members of the public, caring enough about their problems, their needs, their desires, their hopes, their fears to yeah. understand how we can serve that, not necessarily open a door or put a sign in the yeah. air. Yes. Love that. Yes. That's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Oh my gosh, awesome. Sophia, this was so fun. I could take over your entire afternoon and talk to you for hours, <laughs> but I want to be, I've taken too much of your time already. I want to be a good steward no. of that. Um, where can those find you if they want to learn more about what it is you're doing? Yeah, thank you. And by the way, I had a blast too. This is this is so much fun. I had a blast talking to you. I love I love chatting about these things and 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 hearing your insight too. I'll, offline, I'll have to tell you. Um, we'll have to connect more. Yeah. Um. So they can find me. On, I'm on Instagram, Sophia Town, mm-hmm. and I'm also on LinkedIn, Sophia Town. And I also have uh, my website is currently uh, drsophiatown.com. Beautiful. You can find me there as well. Okay. I'll be sure to have those linked in the show notes. Sophia, thank you so much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your findings with us here on the show. I really appreciate it. It was a blast. You'll have to come back for another time. Would love to. (laughs) See you later. (laughs) Whoa. Okay. I have not had that much fun during a conversation in a while because we really spoke about so many of the things that I think are so necessary to ultimately empower ourselves and take control of our trajectory of growth and expansion in business, but also in our personal lives. Sophia brought such an interesting perspective that I'm going to be thinking of for weeks after this conversation. And I really hope that you found some interesting little nuggets during this conversation to chew on as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
Thanks for tuning in. A high five on taking some time to invest in yourself and in your business. If you're looking for more, head over to the show notes to find all the details and links to resources mentioned in this episode of the Market Authority Show. And if you're looking to find a new crew of like-minded pros to ask questions and bounce ideas off of, head over to the marketauthorityacademy.com to join my exclusive community on Facebook, check out my latest free masterclass and tons of bonus content, or apply to my mentorship program to learn how I can help you triple your business this year. Until next time, keep on crushing it.